Lord, as we now enter into your word, we, uh, we are excited to, to hear a sermon from the greatest preacher who's ever lived. Not me. Jesus, Lord. Jesus, our Savior, is about to address us here through these words. And what a gift, Lord, we have. We have his sermon to us today, calling us forward, equipping us, raising the bar. And Lord, if it wasn't for your help, we would never be able to do this. And so we pray that you would, through these words, change us, equip us, grant us wisdom and courage to live like this. We thank you for our Savior, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Okay, what I'd like to do is is remind us where we were just last week. We saw the choosing of the 12, and then we saw this tremendous display of, of power, divine power just emanating from Christ himself. Um, he comes off of the mountain. He comes down with his chosen 12 and all of the other uh, disciples that are with him, and he enters into now uh, this, this level place. It said he stood on a level place or a plain, and there's this great multitude of people, thousands upon thousands thousands of people that have come from all over Israel, from the coast, from the north, from the south, everybody coming together to hear him preach, and they have just witnessed these miracles. And then he begins to preach. This is the sermon that he preaches on the heels of that display of authority and power. This sermon is referred to by commentators as the Sermon on the Plain. And it's similar to the Sermon on the Mount. Some even say it's the same sermon, just interpreted differently from uh, uh, Matthew and Luke, uh, kind of emphasizing different aspects. I think that's possible. Um, but I think it's, it's actually likely that it's the same sermon just preached on different occasions. This is the Sermon on the Plain. Uh, same content was preached in the Sermon on the Mount, that which Matthew emphasizes and records. One of the interesting things to do with a sermon from Jesus is ask, What's the outline? Because preachers live out of outlines. You, you might have picked that up if you look on the back of your sermon notes. To, to get the, the bones of a sermon, you have an outline. And then the flesh is everything that fills out in between there. So the structure of Jesus' sermon is significant for us. How is he flowing through? What are the parts? What is the structure of it? And this, I think, helps us understand the words of the sermon. So here's what I'd like to present for us here is we have to think in the categories of kingdom reality. This is what is real for those who are members of the kingdom. And because this is real, then kingdom calling, the implications for us, things that we should live out then because these things are true for those who are members of the kingdom in Christ as, as he is the king. So kingdom reality, the first four come to us in four categories of blessings and woe. There's four blessings and followed by four woes. What I did is I just corresponded them all together. So we have a blessing and a woe. I'm going to put it together and then move through like that. The blessing is speaking of the one who is in a condition that is most blessed. It's the most desirable condition to be in. Woe speaks to the one who is in the least desirable position blessings and woes. Number one, Jesus redefines riches. 
He redefines riches. Verse 20, he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and he said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. He begins off with the poverty, the poor, right? Good news to the poor. Well, this is the good news. You who are poor, you have the kingdom. Okay, now, the first question in our minds has to be this. Are we talking about money? Are, Are we talking about the number of cows in the field, the, the, the acreage behind the house? Are we talking about the 401k? Are we talking about money in the bank? And I think we have to say, well, yes, we are talking about money. We're talking about material possessions. We're talking about riches. But, but there's more. Okay, So there's the physical experience and the spiritual reality. And they're both in view, I think. Jesus will say, we'll study this in a a number of weeks in Luke 18, how difficult it is for those who have wealth, you know, material, possessions. If you have a lot of that, it's very difficult to enter the kingdom of God. It's actually easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So we cannot say, well, Jesus isn't talking about money. I think he is, but there's something more he's talking about as well. This is why it's helpful to compare and contrast the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain because Matthew gives us this extra couple words that point us to the spiritual reality that Jesus is driving home to. Matthew records this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So here's what we cannot conclude. We, We know the gospel, right? You don't, gain entrance into the kingdom of heaven because of your lack of money, that that doesn't make any sense. You don't qualify to enter in through the pearly gates because you you show there's a zero balance in your bank account, right? So clearly, Jesus is pointing us to the fact that poverty here is a spiritual reality. Those who are aware of of how absolutely impoverished they are on their own, it's those who cry out for a Savior. It's those those are the people who say, woe is me, left to myself, I am nothing, I have no hope. Save me, save me. Where will I place my hope? Oh, friends, this is to us all. Compared to the nations of the world. We live in opulence. We are wealthy people. Even the poorest among us is, is, is rich compared to vast portions of the world. And so we have to be keenly aware. This is not just talking about super rich people. This is talking to every one of us. Where will we place our hope? Our security? What is that fallback plan for us? The 401k? Do I feel secure because I have saved and if everything falls apart, at least I have that? What's he he saying? That is not a savior. Don't look to that. Because the barns are big and the grain is 
is in great supply, this very night your soul may be demanded of you. It is not grain or 401ks or multiple houses or lots of gold and silver that will save your soul. Where will I place my hope? Do you feel your poverty apart from Christ? Do you feel that you bring nothing to the table? This is where the contrast of self-righteousness is so toxic, right? The Pharisees come in and they're, they're pronouncing all that they believe that they bring. I did this. I didn't do this. I'm a pretty good person here. This is what I bring. Where the sinner can't even raise his head and he cries out, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's the difference. The one who cries for mercy is the one to whom the kingdom is given. Now, redefining satisfaction. So first, Jesus redefines riches for us. Then he redefines satisfaction. This is what I'm suggesting is in view here. 21a, blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. All right, so then the... Our, are we talking about food? Are we talking about food? Well, yeah, but not only food. There's more, right? Blessed are you who are hungry. Hunger. You hung, you're hungering. The spiritual reality is also in view. There is a spiritual reality that sometimes people will look in all kinds of ways to satisfy food being one. What do I believe will most satisfy my longings? What is satisfaction? And where is it found? What, what is really what I need? And it meets us again, doesn't it? In a country where we have grocery stores with, with just rows and rows of opportunity. And the commercials on our TVs are constantly saying, you want satisfaction? You need this car. Because Matthew McConaughey can fall into a pool backwards in a full suit. That's how satisfied he is in that Oldsmobile or whatever that car he's trying to sell. You see what they're doing? Satisfaction is found through purchasing our product. And if you don't have it, we're pointing out the craving. You want it. They will tell you what you want before you know what you want. Good marketing. Good idolatry. What will most satisfy my longings? Food? That can be an idol. It can be an idol. You can seek to quell a soul starvation with ice cream. I, I would just point this out. If you have a bad day, and we, we joke about this. I see this joked about it. This is not a good idea. Don't preach this sermon to your soul. I had a terrible day at work. I deserve a tub of ice cream. What am I preaching to my soul? That with the weight of a horrible day, I can solve the issue with a, a spoon after spoon after spoon of ice cream. What am I doing? I'm not solving anything. I'm creating another problem. Food is given to glorify God. 
So eat ice cream to his glory. Don't look for it to satisfy your soul. Mm. Money, sex, experiences, relationships, fill in the blank. This is a laundry list of idolatry that we will cram into our soul thinking that just another concert, another this, another, it's just going to fix what I need. And the hunger inside is found satisfied only in the Lord Himself. Listen to Matthew. He builds it out, adds two more words. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst, he adds, and thirst for righteousness. For righteousness. Well, who are the people that hunger and thirst for righteousness? True God-honoring righteousness. They're God's people. God's people hunger and thirst for righteousness. And they're blessed. That's the best condition. When you can look at the idol and say, there's nothing there that will solve this desire, this craving in my soul. Everything is found in Christ. Jesus, we hunger and thirst for you. Hunger and thirst for you. I am the bread, he says. I am the water. Come. Come. Hmm. True satisfaction is found in glorifying God. True satisfaction is found in loving Him, knowing Him, walking with Him, delighting in Him, treasuring Him, submitting to Him, obeying Him, following after Him, giving your life for His glory. That is the most satisfying reality. Which is why the Lord commands us, more than any other command in the Bible, praise me. See that? It's a gift. His command to us to praise Him is the greatest gift He could give us because when we do, our soul just blossoms in the light of His love. Hmm. So, redefining riches. Jesus has now redefined satisfaction. Just a few words. Look at what He's done. These, these explosions of glory and truth are going off. Here comes another one. Redefining joy, verse 21b. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. What are we talking about here? Is is Jesus suggesting that laughter is inappropriate? You would draw that conclusion in certain churches, right? Don't you dare smile. We're in church. Right? Right? supposed to weep and mourn be somber and serious what's going on here cleanse your hands james writes you sinners purify your hearts you double-minded be wretched and mourn and weep let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom humble yourselves before the lord and he will exalt you The inclination of the sinful heart is not toward repentance. It is toward head in the sand, ignore it, pretend like it doesn't exist, downplay it, justify it. I'm just reacting, right? It's really her fault. This is just the way I am. And then laugh, laugh, laugh. 
Sin? Serious? No. Come on, lighten up, preacher. We're just having fun. What's the big deal? Hmm. Church is a place for very weighty, somber mourning and grieving. That's why I have a a problem with some of these false gospel ministries that all they want to do is just make people feel good. Just to, to break it to you, if you only leave our gatherings feeling good about yourself, I have failed. I have failed. It is not my job to give you warm fuzzies every Sunday morning. We have to regularly come face to face with our sin and be confronted with its horrific offense against a righteous and holy God and weep and mourn and grieve. But through Jesus, we have a place to go with Him. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. Humble yourselves before the Lord. Lord, He will not despise a broken spirit and a contrite heart. So, yes, church is a place to be exceedingly serious and also exceedingly joyful. The joy that we know when we bring the weight of our sin, its offense, and we lay it at the foot of the cross, is that there is provision made in Christ. He has paid for our sins, and the burden is removed. We are forgiven. The best condition in this life is one of perpetual repentance and finding freedom again and again, over and over. He forgave me. I'm free. It is both of these. We regularly feel the weight and seriousness of our sin and laugh in the freedom and lightness and and absolute profound liberty we have in forgiveness. The joy of forgiveness. Nobody knows how to have a good time like forgiven sinners. Okay? The church is a place of Total, exuberant joy. So there should be laughter. There should be joy. Just imagine if on this side of glory we can know that kind of joy. Imagine face to face, like Merv is this morning. Face to face with our Savior and Lord. Forever. No more serious weight of sin. The old things are done away with. No more death or crying or mourning or pain. The old order is gone. Only Life, light, joy, peace. Hmm. Number four, reorienting approval. Jesus has already redefined riches for kingdom people, redefined satisfaction. He's redefined joy. Now he's going to reorient our understanding and our concept of what, what approval we should seek. Verse 22, blessed are you, kingdom people. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and when they revile you and spurn your name as evil 
on account of the Son of Man. All of these things they do because of your relationship with me. You call yourself a Christian, a Christ follower? Get ready. When that takes place, Jesus says, rejoice. Rejoice in that day. Leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven and for so their fathers did to the prophets. There's nothing new under the sun. This is a normal expected experience. And then he says this, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did of the false prophets. What should we expect? This is the greatest watershed divide in the Christian life. Will I live my life in the fear of man as I did before I met Jesus? Seeking to please Him. Seeking to show myself as important or amazing. Comparing and contrasting and being devastated by negative opinions and views and, and criticisms and, and being, feeling great about myself when everyone applauds me and pats me. It, is it the fear of man that we live by? Not kingdom people. It's the fear of God. It's the fear of God. At the end of the day, the stamp of approval comes from the Father. Through the Son, well done. Good and faithful servant. That's what we run for. And in the face of all of the fire of criticism, come from wherever it may, at the end of the day, it is the Lord that we fear. There's a couple of verses that I just have to put up here. Jesus says later in, in John 15, if the world hates you, don't forget this. No, the world has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, you're kingdom people. I chose you out of the world. You are my chosen people. You carry the kingdom light with you. That's why the world hates you. Paul says this to Timothy just to remind him of these realities. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Peter says, don't be surprised by the fiery trial when it comes upon you as if this is unexpected. No, it's coming. This is, this is what will happen for those who carry the light in a dark world. Increasingly so. We are very blessed in our nation. Very blessed. What we experience as persecution is, is next to nothing compared to the rest of the world. But friends, I feel the, the winds of change blowing. You feel that? Be ready. Be ready. And rejoice. Rejoice when it happens. Rejoice. They killed Jesus, and he was sinless. And we carry his name. Hmm. Now, kingdom calling. I just think it's so important that we remember this because of the reality that we have as kingdom people. These things in view, now we're called. Behind all of these, we should feel a gospel goal. What is my goal? 
for every interaction with every person I have, including those who would fall into the category of opposition or enemy. What is my goal? Jesus. That's my goal. That's my goal. Not me. Not me. Jesus. As a kingdom person, if that's in view, this is possible. Number one, my heart. My heart. It's 27a. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. From the heart, we're talking. From, from, from my heart, I am not just simply to abide or just ignore or not return evil for evil. I am called to love my enemies. That's not natural. That's not natural. This is upside down. Number two, my actions. My actions. 27b. Do good to those who hate you. Okay? Now, feel this. It's not just deal with people who hate you. Don't punch them in the face. It's not, that, it's not neutral, and it's not neg- it's, it's positive. It's offense. I purposefully initiate goodness. I'm, I'm moving toward them in good. People who hate me receive good from me. That's upside down. Number three, my words. My words. Bless those who curse you. Okay? You Christian. You goody too. You in here judging everybody? You think you're better than us? Huh? You're holier than thou? Where do you get the platform to, to do it? How are you going to respond? Bless. Bless. Don't curse. The opposite. My words are to be blessing. Words of blessing. Number four, my longings. Hmm. With a gospel goal, my longing is radically different. Pray for those who abuse you. Pray for those who abuse you. That's the word. Abuse. Physically injuring. Coming at me and and, and instead of striking back, fighting back, kicking back, I am to respond in prayer for them. Now, if Jesus had not given this example to us, we might struggle to understand how in the world does this look? Jesus prayed from the cross, Father, forgive them. As they spat upon him and mocked him and crucified him, he prayed for them. That's the bar. Wow. My responses, verse 29, my responses. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other. From one who takes away your cloak, don't withhold your tunic either. They say, give me your coat and your wallet. You're like, here, take my shirt too. You want my shoes? That'll freak him out. (laughs) It's like, wait, what? What are you doing, man? 
Here, seriously, take my keys. You want my car? This is, this is radical. Radical. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. As you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Wow. Wow. And we have to use wisdom in this. Okay, I lived in Chicago for four years. Every time I set foot on the streets, the streets were lined with people begging from me. I was already broke as a Bible school student in college. I had no money. And I remember oftentimes just feeling this weight like these people are in terrible shape. What can I do? And so the times where I was able, I went and I bought a Big Mac or some food, but brought them something to eat. There were other times where I just simply said, I got nothing, but I can pray. Can I pray for you? Right? So don't, don't get lost in the letter. See the heart. What is the goal? Love. 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 Don't buy alcohol for an alcoholic begging to continue his slavery. Be wise. Be discerning. But in these things, this is a radical kind of love. I, I call it tenacious love. You, this is not instinctual. You have to fight for this. You have to preach to your own heart to, to, to leverage this kind of flow and love outward. What is my greatest goal? That they be fed, warmed, that they have warm fuzzies, that they know Jesus. That's the goal. That's what our aim is in all of this. That the good works we do are done to the glory of God the Father with the end that they would glorify Him. So they come with words. They come with words. i tell you why I'm doing this today, man. Because I'm loved by Jesus. And I want, I want you to know Him. I want to point you to Him. He is the answer. Now, Kingdom reward and reflection. Kingdom reward and reflection. I want to begin this with a question. Okay? Let me pose this question this way. Is it possible to selflessly, you might just underline that word. Well, I didn't write it out. You have to write it out. Is it possible to selflessly, emphasis on selflessly, love from the heart, and at the same time, be motivated by eternal rewards from the Father. We're talking about something that is exclusive of the other. Can I genuinely obey these commands from the heart and show love even to my enemy and at the same time be motivated in that selfless loving act to meet with reward from God the Father? There are many Christians who say, absolutely not. Absolutely not. That's not love then. It's not selfless. And I say, wrong. Because of text like this. Just read this and, and watch the answer to that question explode before your eyes. If you love those who love you, what, keyword benefit is that to you? For every sin, uh, even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? 
For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, here's a word, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. Here's the call. Here's the move. Here is the, the, the motivation even. Love your enemies, do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and I would add, from them, and your reward will be great. From who? From the Father. That's the same act. In the, in the same act, I am saying, I love, I selflessly sacrifice myself to, to show this love to you to the end of gospel glorification, pointing out Jesus. And in doing that, I can be motivated to meet with reward from the Father who promises to reward those who love selflessly. Oh, this, my friends, is one of the secrets to selfless love. 1 Corinthians 13, Paul displays this again. There's not thousands. There's, there's, there are many passages that point this out. Here's one. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries, all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but I have not love, I am nothing. Here's the clincher. Jesus just reaches as high as he possibly if, if I give all that I have and even deliver my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Motivation. Motivation. What's he doing? He's unmasking what we should be thinking in our hearts as far as this vertical relationship with our Father. If I do love and give my body to be burned, lay down my life for the sake of another, I gain reward from the Father. It does not nullify that love, that sack. It makes it, makes it motivated, makes it real. It gives fire to it. We're called to selfless, loving, horizontal sacrifice while being motivated by the promise of a vertical reward from the Father. Is that, is that amazing? They're both true. They're both true. I think Jesus wants us to understand that there is a Father who delights in children who show the same kind of love with which they have been loved. He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. He is a rewarder of those who image Him and, and delight uh, to, to display that kind of love to the world. What is the nature of that reward? I don't know. I, I don't know. But I do know it is unfading and it's kept in heaven for you, Peter says. He said, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy and thieves can't break in and steal. It's eternal. So there are things, friends, that you can do this week Think of this short little life we have. What, 80, 90, 100 years? And then eternity. There are things that you can do in this short life that will echo through eternity in reward. That's radical. That's upside-down thinking. That's kingdom mindset. 
And that's the call of Christ. Now, kingdom reflection. He lands it here. Your reward will be great, as we saw. And then he says this, and you will be sons of the Most High. What does that mean? Are we earning our salvation? No. We're showing ourselves to be sons and daughters. We're, we're, we're literally light in the darkness. Sons of the Most High. We're, we're reflecting His image to the world. For He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. And here it is. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Be holy as He is holy. Here, be merciful as He is merciful. We can read this and say, man, it's amazing to me that, that God is kind, kind to the ungrateful and the evil out there. And then we just sit and say, huh, it's not only out there, is it? It's in here. He, he's kind to ungrateful and evil people like me. It's, it comes all the way back around. When, when we were His enemies, He sent His Son to die for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't sit and wait and say, let's see, I'm going to wait until they show some gratitude, then I'm going to help them out. I'm going to wait until they show themselves at least a little worthy, then I'll die to save them. No. Unworthy, evil, and ungrateful. Sinners saved in mercy and grace. We are His ambassadors. We are His ambassadors. We are called to go and carry, not just in the fact of our own stories, but in the display of His mercy through interactions all week long. Man, this, this one, this will convict. Convict. So our response this morning, there's a lot of different things the Lord can be doing. One question that we've got to ask, who's your enemy? Who do you think of first? Who is the person who comes against me? Who presses my buttons? Who, who falls into that category of opposition to me? Some of you battle to release offenses that people have committed against you even years ago they're very real who's my enemy the reality is is that through the gospel we are given the resource to not only release the offense but to be kind to do good to bless to pray for to to completely surprised with grace and mercy. That's our opportunity. And, friends, that is the kingdom call. It's easy to find these as suggestions, but they're not suggestions. They're commands from Jesus himself. These are commands to his kingdom people. So, 
Here's what happened in my own heart. I, I feel woefully inadequate to do this. I, I feel like I fail at this. I need to grow in this. My heart needs to grow more toward those that I struggle to love. Gospel-centered people who've been forgiven, shown mercy, kindness, and grace. Called to live in a reality of the kingdom, knowing that even the, the stealing of your coat and the giving of your shirt compared to what awaits you is nothing. It's nothing. I'm a son of the king. I'm a son of the king. And I want you to be as well. Right? To the glory of God. We will not do this perfectly. In fact, if you, if you expect perfection in your life, you will be sadly uh, disappointed. Progression. Lord, help me grow in this. Help my heart to be quicker to love instead of or return evil for evil. Think of the resource we have. We have freedom in Christ, forgiveness, joy. We have the resource of the Holy Spirit indwelling us, radically changing us, equipping us, and opening our eyes to this powerful Word of God. We have one another to help each other out. <laughs> when someone's ragging on someone else, what, what help can we offer? Hey, hold on there. Hold on. That's a little harsh. We need one another in this. We can grow. I know we can grow. And we can glorify God as we do. Let's pray. Father, we give praise to you for this unbelievably stunning sermon that Jesus preached to us. We pray that we could receive it with ears, not just to, to hear your word, but to do it. Lord, help us to do it, to live it now, to put it to work. I pray that your spirit would convict us where we come up short, that your spirit would empower us to, to move into new areas of this kind of love. Lord, if there are any here who need to release offense to you, I pray today would be the day as they have been forgiven, that they would forgive. I pray that you would give us opportunities this week even to, to show a kingdom response in a way the world would not understand or expect. We thank you for all that you have done for us. And we pray that we would display that same kind of mercy and grace and kindness and love to a world that needs Jesus. Use us to that end, Lord, and bring glory to Yourself, we pray. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.